ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. This is Dr. Michael Egner. I have the great pleasure today of having as my guest Steve Lofman. Steve is an engineer with an extensive background in engineering aspects of design systems. And together with Howard Klicksman, who is a physician, Steve and Howard have written a wonderful book called Your Designed Body. It is a fascinating discussion of the aspects of human physiology that can really only be explained as an engineered system. And those aspects are basically all of human physiology. So, Steve, it's a real pleasure to have you today on ID of the Future. Uh, it's great to be back. Thanks. On this segment, I wanted to ask about the theory that you and Howard have presented in your book that you call the theory of biological design. The subtitle is Making it a Decision. What does that mean? And what's that theory about? So it's for an engineer, there must be something going on in the history of living systems. There must be some amazing engineering happening. So rather than posit that the human body was designed, uh, because I think that's sort of obvious. And I think uh, the intelligent design community has really made a strong case. I, I just can't imagine that anyone can find a better explanation than intelligent design. But the, the notion of intelligent design doesn't really tell us how things work. So the theory of biological design is to explore living systems to understand what's going on, what the design characteristics of those systems are, and how those might work together over time in the history of life. And perhaps by doing this, we can come up with an alternate theory to Darwinism and its many variations, which seem to be, as we discussed last time, not just causally inadequate, but causally incapable. They don't just fall short. They just don't even approach solving the problems. So for listeners who heard our previous session on the causal factors in Darwinian theory, we can talk about the causal factors in this new theory. Would that work for you? Oh, yes, please, please. I'm, I'm fascinated. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating topic. And I, uh, in many ways, I think the theory of intelligent design has asked the most important questions and has been an extremely powerful way to examine Darwinian explanations and raise the questions that need to be raised. But we'd like to take this further. We'd like to take this to a, a theory of biological design itself uh, and how does intelligence work in this process. And that's why I'm so excited about, about your ideas. So let's start with just a, a very brief review. So living systems, and in particular the human body, present a set of very, very difficult causal hurdles. In order to be alive, you need coherent interdependent systems to overcome these hurdles. And those properties are very difficult to achieve. In fact, I think it's apparent, it certainly is to me, that these problems cannot be solved gradually if the body has to be alive at every step in the process. So we have four, just as neo-Darwinism has, four causal factors in our theory, at least in its current state, very, very early times for this theory. But we also have four causal factors, but they're very different 
from Darwinian theory. I'll just kind of walk through them, and we'll look at the same three principles or properties of these, which are preconditions, capabilities, and limitations. And the, the idea is this will offer people a you know, it may not even be right yet, but it seems directionally correct, and it will certainly give people a lot to think about. So the first causal factor in this new theory of biological design is intentional actions. Somebody intended an outcome and then acted to make that outcome happen. Okay, that is the only, the one and only known way to overcome these causal hurdles in any human experience. And we know this. As engineers, we know how to build stuff. You're going to build an Atlas V rocket. We know exactly what that is going to involve. It's going to take tens of thousands of engineers, multiple years to design not just the overall system, but all the parts. So you do that by going through a set of steps of hierarchical design where you solve the big problem by breaking it into small problems. You solve each of those small problems, and then you put the solutions to the small problems together into the solution to the larger problem. And But there are many, many, many layers where that has to happen. So we know about intentional acts. We know how they work. We know what kind of work is involved. We know that intentional actions are exactly the kind of thing we need. So what do intentional actions require in the way of preconditions? Well, you have to have some sort of a mind. You have to have someone to do the intending. And that someone or something has to also be able to act. So it does not require that a precise outcome is known a priori. It only requires that a set of possible outcomes is known a priori. So obviously, uh, capabilities, the intentional actions can do anything we're talking about here if you have an acting agent of sufficient intelligence and power. You know, I don't know how to make something that reproduces. As a designer, I don't know how to do that. I can observe that it's been done in living systems, but I, I, I lack the intelligence and power to do that. The limitations of intentional acts are pretty clear. The actor that we're talking about can be limited by either their ability to imagine the future, imagine that outcome, or they can be limited by the ability to act to, to, to actually bring about the desired state. So that's, uh, that's pretty clear. There's no real um, confusion about that. Obviously, a lot of people aren't going to like that, but that's uh, probably the primary uh, driver in this new theory. The second is really important for understanding the history of life, and that is internal adaptations. That's our second causal factor. Organisms are all designed to have internal adaptive uh, capabilities. So in the human body, if we can't get our favorite energy source, our cells will turn on a different metabolic pathway to use a secondary energy source that's adjusting or adapting to changes in conditions. All organisms have these, but some organisms, apparently, this is, there's fresh research. We don't talk about it in the book because it was, uh, we didn't know about it when we wrote the book, which was, you know, just a year ago when we were writing this bit. But there are certain cephalopods, for example, 
that can edit their messenger RNA in real time outside of their cell's nuclei. How do they do that? I have no idea. I don't think anyone gets how that works, but it happens. We can observe it happening. Uh, There are organisms that appear to be able to edit their own DNA. Uh, How does that work? We don't know, but it's clearly something that's programmed into the organism. It's not happening randomly. It's repeatable. Sometimes it's reversible. So these are these are really interesting properties, and, and we think uh, there's enormous research in this area that's still to be done. What are the preconditions? Well, an organism's adaptive capabilities have to be put there. If it's a program, that program has to have been set inside that organism. Uh, and that, in all cases, will require some kind of sensors, logic, and effectors, which are the properties of all control systems. What capabilities? Well, this is a function of what the capabilities of the organism are, and that they could be all over the map. We just don't know. Different organisms, we would expect to have very different adaptive capabilities. What are the limitations? Well, they have the same limitations. An adaptive capability that's programmed into an organism can only adapt according to the program that's there. It can't adapt to something new uh, without changing that program. And that's, it's theoretically possible that it could have the ability to adapt its own adaptive capability, but that may be a little too much for today. But it's, it's really an interesting thought, you know. The third one is design properties. This one's real near and dear to me. I'm an architect. I design systems for a living. The way I design my systems, the properties of those systems affect whether and how that system can change over time. I I call this architecture, you might think of it as design properties, that's the term we use in the book, but things like modularity. Modular design makes it easier to change things. Complex orchestrations, like between modules, make changes harder. So the ways that these design properties are, are working inside of an organism or inside of an ecosystem will have a huge impact on what happens over time. And honestly, we don't really know what this means in, in living systems yet. It's a lot of people recognize the modularity in life. And it's modular all the way down from the chemistry all the way up to human societies. Modularity is everywhere. But we don't know what that means. We don't know how it works over time, especially how it interplays with these other causal factors. Okay, so preconditions. Well, <laughs> In order to have architectural properties, you have to have an architecture. So somehow, in living systems, an architecture happened. I think that requires intent. Other people will probably argue with that. So what are the capabilities? Again, they vary depending on which design property you're talking about. And our last, our fourth design factor is degradation. Engineers know, like I said in the previous session, Entropy lives in time. Degradation happens in time. Why is anything still alive? It may have been alive before, but why hasn't it degraded to the point where it's not able to be alive anymore? I've never heard anybody ask that question before, but it's always there. Degradation's always there. It's always driving us toward equilibrium with the environment. So how do living systems remain static? It's uh, it's another factor that you neo-Darwinism know, just has no answers for. 
We believe the answer is that every organism must have systems that prevent degradation or slow it down or maybe even detect it and reverse it. We know in our immune systems that we can detect when we're under attack and we have systems to prevent our bodies from failing. But what other kinds of degradation are happening and what kind of systems do we have in our bodies to prevent that? Do we have systems that can check our progress in development in utero? As the zygote starts to to develop, do we have systems that will test to see if that development's happening correctly and maybe correct or maybe abort? It's possible that if something's going wrong, this happens with protein folds. If, if the protein's not folding correctly, your cells can figure that out and it will kill that protein and send it off to the recycling system. So what are all those ways that organisms have to prevent or slow down or limit degradation? I've been practicing medicine for about 40 years, and I, I'm still honestly amazed when I just get a simple blood test on a, on a patient. You may run 20 different parameters. There, there's serum sodium, there's serum potassium, all different chemicals and so on in, in their blood. And it's amazing how precise and consistent these normal values are. Uh, and they're, they're necessary for life. I mean, if someone's sodium is more than 5 or 10% off of the normal value, they're dead. And it, yep. it, it, it just amazes me that you can draw a sample of blood from somebody off the street, and the results you get are of a beautifully, precisely tuned device. It's an engineering marvel. Yeah, so where's the set point? When you look at the DNA or other epigenetic information, where's the set point for that? Where's the set point for your blood pressure or for your oxygen level? How does your control system know whether it's too high or too low? These are really profound questions, and there are a lot of those kinds of questions. Of course, one of the questions one can ask here is what you're describing, I think, is undeniably true about the way the body works. Does that necessarily point to an intelligent agent, to a mind? Could you get this without a mind behind it? Well, my my answer is no, but I mean, it is theoretically possible that probabilities being what they are, no matter how big the denominator in in the fraction is, as long as the numerator, the number above the line in the division is greater than zero, there is a chance. It may be, you know, so close to zero that it's indistinguishable, but it is probably theoretically possible, but you've got to believe in in thousands of orders of magnitude of luck. This is orders of magnitude, maybe millions of orders of magnitude, where you have a one d- divided by 10 to the millionth power or 10 millionth power. The numbers are just crazy. They just don't add up. Some of the classical philosophers have addressed these issues given the limitations of their scientific knowledge at the time. It goes back to Aristotle, to Plotinus, to Aquinas, to to all, all sorts of people who thought very deeply about these issues. And they've noted that nature is just shot through with teleology, with what appears to be purpose 
in natural processes. And of course, living things are the most striking, the most clear example of purpose. And they've pointed out that intentionality, which is the quality of a mind to be about something and to kind of refer to something outside of itself, bears a striking resemblance to the teleology in nature, to purposes in nature. And in a sense, intentionality of the mind is a kind of a purpose of the mind, and teleology is a purpose in nature. And it looks like you need to have something with a purpose like a mind to create purposes in nature. So there, there is a philosophical framework that really strongly supports the view that the kind of elegant, intentional adaptations that we see in human physiology really have to come from a mind. There, there's no other plausible source. But I think it's important to note, and, and this is uh, one of the outcomes of this new theory work, is that it's not necessary that all the details were intended exactly the way they occur. So right. we, we uh, talk about organic growth. You can build internal capabilities, which is an act of intention, but how those internal capabilities work over time is running the program. So that's organic. We actually show a, a sort of a chart in the book about degradation is almost entirely organic. Intentional acts are entirely intentional. But the design properties of an organism, their internal capabilities, and especially combined with traits of other individuals and other species in an ecosystem, allows you to get this sort of combination of intended outcomes and organic outcomes. And it's... It, it, it can be a really beautiful thing. This is the way all human, complex human systems are, are developed. Things like the internet, you build the rules, you, you sort of set up the conditions, and, and you let it go, and it just it sort of grows on its own. So there's a lot of combination of intention and organic growth over time, which is what I think will make biology interesting for the next 100 years. Yes, Yes, or the or the or the next thousand. <laughs> I, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and and the, the the very point that you made that the intentionality, the purposes built into the system, don't have to be perfect. Their tendencies to do things that work in a system that is inherently sort of heading towards degradation, but resist the degradation is what a lot of the classical philosophers also noted was that the teleology in nature, the purposes in nature don't have to be perfect. Just the fact that there's anything like a purpose in nature requires a mind behind it. Yes. So one, one of the, the outcomes of, of this discussion, and I think really the point of our book, is that people have to decide. So you've got a decision in front of you as a, as a human being, and every person has to come to grips with this question, whether they do it intentionally or not. And that is am I a cosmic accident or am I, was I intended? And that's, I think, the most important question that a human being must grapple with in their life. It affects every aspect of life. Our listeners know, if you are a cosmic accident, then nothing matters. There's no value. There's no purpose. If you are not a cosmic accident and you are intended, then everything is different. Everything is better. So that's the question we part with at the end of uh, this book. We believe we've made a strong case 
for our view, which is the design perspective. And I, I think a, another very important point in all this, and I think what, what you just said is, is the most important point, that, that is that the truth of the matter is that we are here on purpose and that our bodies work on purpose and that we're not accidents. But there's also kind of a practical applied aspect to that in the practice of medicine. And that is that I think that the science behind evolutionary theory and Darwinian evolution really plays no meaningful role in medical practice. That is, in everyday life, when your doctor is trying to help you, when he's treating your pneumonia, when he's dealing with abnormalities in your blood from sodium and potassium problems, when he's trying to cure a brain tumor or trying to fix a traumatic injury that you've had, evolution plays no role in his thinking. That is, that doctors every day in the clinic, in the operating room, everything they do is under the implicit assumption that the body is designed. What we do professionally is always reverse engineering. We're trying to figure out the purposes for the parts of the body that we're dealing with and how we can make them work better. So it, 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 it struck me over the years that medicine is really carried out as a process of reverse engineering of the body. And Darwinian theory plays practically no role in it whatsoever. It's totally useless to medicine. Yeah, so uh, my my sense from, as part of writing this book, I went, actually went and read Darwin's On the Origin of Species. It, my sense was that this was a giant thought experiment on Darwin's part. And unlike Einstein's thought experiments, which tended to always be right, Darwin's seemed like they're always wrong. And as a thought experiment, it doesn't seem to have much value for any practical purpose. A narrative gloss, as has been said, it's it's yes. superfluous to the actual practice of both science and uh, and medicine. What I've wanted for so many years, and I think that you and Howard are doing fantastic work on this, is a theory of intelligent design that goes deeper than than asking the right questions, and that it actually begins to give meaningful, powerful answers to why things in the body are as they are. So ID has asked the critical questions. And now I think we're getting a framework for getting answers to those questions. So it's very exciting work. Yes, I agree. I think this is exciting times. And for listeners who might be considering a career, maybe college students or high school students, biology is going to be exciting for the foreseeable future. Because reverse engineering is exciting and all of biology is reverse engineering. And for those who just want to make money, biomimetics is, is there. You can steal the designs from biology and you don't have to pay royalties. Yes. Apparently God doesn't require that. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it, it, it really goes both ways, meaning biology teaches us about engineering and engineering teaches us about biology. Absolutely. It's fascinating. Well, Steve, th- thank you very much. It's been a fascinating discussion. And uh, I've been uh, talking with my friend and colleague, Steve Loffman, who, along with uh, his colleague, Howard Glicksman, have written an, an incredibly good book called Your, Your Designed Body, 
It's an exploration of the evidence for design in human physiology and is, is the, really the beginning of a, of a theory of design, of, of, of how design works. I recommend everybody get the book and read it. I really loved it. It's a fantastic book. And Steve, thank you so much for the work you've done. Ah, thanks. I appreciate your comments and your kind words. So uh, this is Mike Egner for ID the Future, and thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.